Well, good morning. We are really excited to be here uh, this morning and um, didn't have a very far drive from Birmingham, Alabama. It was a beautiful drive and a beautiful day, but Trina and I are just excited to be here today to share with each of you guys. We love your staff here. We got to spend some time with them a couple months ago, so we're just going to kind of dive in. I know we're going we're gonna to share our story quickly this morning, but I hope some of what we share will relate to each one of you. And hope we get to meet a lot of you this afternoon at our My Secure Family uh, seminar as well. I was hearing some of the numbers. I know a number of you will be there. So if you haven't signed up, uh, you might consider uh, joining us, maybe after you hear a little bit of our, of our story. And, and here's the thing about our story. Uh, we wish that we could change a lot of the details of our story. Um, if I could take a big eraser uh, and some key points of the story, I certainly would do that. But what we hope the takeaway this morning is that we can celebrate the amazing transforming power of God's grace. Um, the first song that we started with this morning was that all our sins uh, are forgiven. And, and the wonder of that fact being true is why we're here this morning uh, to celebrate that. And we're going to share um, the good, bad, and the ugly of our story and, uh, and hope that that gives some of you uh, hope as well. As they mentioned we have a ministry in Birmingham called Undone Redones. I'll just tell you a little bit about who we are before we dive into our story. Now, part of my, to think that I would ever have a ministry that would have the word undone in it, um, it really speaks to how my paradigm has changed because uh, as you'll hear as I get into my story, part of my paradigm was Christians, it's all clean and neat. It's all put together, and you basically keep in secret and cover up those things that are not, right? And uh, so we'll talk more about that. But now our message uh, to many uh, is undone, redone, that often God is the one who is orchestrating our undoing so that He can bring about something that's brand new. Our vision, our goal, our mission statement, if you will, of our ministry is every heart living free. Uh, a big part of both of our journey is really discovering uh, how to live deeply from the heart, how to connect deeply at the heart level instead of just uh, connecting more at the head, the sports news and weather, right? That God wants to bring our hearts alive. Um, and that was a foreign concept uh, to me as well. Uh, we have a weekly podcast that we do called Undone Redone as well. would invite you maybe to check that out. We just put out, uh, we're at, I think, episode 203. Um, if any of you are sports fans, I know this is probably a little dangerous. But we I need to, I guess, have this balanced out with an Auburn uh, former player. We just had a guy named Simeon Castile uh, on this week's show. Uh, if any of you know the Castile family here in this state, whether you're an Alabama or an Auburn fan. Um, but um, we deal with a lot of the topics that we'll be talking about today, whether it be parenting or marriage or our own individual journeys. Um, all 200 episodes really are celebrate that. And our tagline, as you can see there, is life is messy, bring your boots. All right, so that's what we get into there. We also have a YouTube channel uh, that you can check out um, as well. And then connect with us also. We'd love to connect with you uh, through social media. Because one of our, we're going to be talking about technology this afternoon. 
And one of our values of our ministry is redeeming technology. It'd be very easy just to say, let's be anti-technology, but there's a lot that can be redeemed uh, through technology. And so if you're coming this afternoon, know that we're not going to be talking about how to avoid all technology, but understand the dangers of technology and how can we shepherd our own hearts and also those that God has put in our charge, our children and grandchildren in this age of uh, technology. Well, and one of the other, the quotes that we didn't put in here, sometimes we put in here, but we, we were kind of short on time today, but I want to go on and share that quote with you. Tim Keller, and his books were very, very over, the, really probably I would say over the last 10 to 15 years have been just very, very beneficial in our own lives. But he has a quote that we use many times in our ministry, and it says, Christianity does not give you what you want. It's more like an explosion that blows up everything that we have to make room for something new. And that's not really a paradigm that I grew up with growing up. I I didn't know that life was messy. Life, for the most part, was clean and neat. And so just real quickly, just a snippet of my story is I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, came to Sanford. I wanted to go to FSU to study music, but my dad, being a minister, made all of his girls go to small Christian schools. And so Sanford was at least eight hours away from home. And so my twin sister and I came from Jacksonville, Florida to, to Sanford University. And it was an incredible, incredible um, time there. But and, and we'll get a little bit more into our paradigms. But for the most part, life was clean and neat. I'm a I'm a middle child by six minutes because I'm a, I'm a twin. And then my older sister is two years older than than my twin sister and I. And and my paradigm growing up, for the most part, was good choices plus a pursuit of godliness equals kind of a perfect life. And it was clean and neat growing up. And so I thought I would marry somebody in ministry. And I did. I met Trey. Um, He was in the middle of his or middle of his freshman year. Actually, we met his freshman year in my middle of my junior year, but we got married the middle of his junior year after I graduated from school. So yes, I'm two years older than he is. Yeah. So me growing up, um, kind of, uh, she grew up in Jacksonville, the largest city land-wise in the country. I grew up in rural East Alabama um, in Randolph County, went to high school in Cleburne County, and um, literally more cows than people in the small town that I grew up in, 117. Anybody here from a town smaller than 117? Uh, people. Um, there's a few. All right. So that's a very few hands usually go up um, with that. When I say everybody knew everybody, you can imagine everybody knew everybody. And beyond that, and some of you from a small town can certainly get this, uh, my middle name is Trailer, which is my grandmother's maiden name. My last name is Lovern. Lots of trailers and lots of Loverns in this rural county. Uh, to the point that my mom and her sister both married Loverns that were not related. So I've got a first cousin on the Loverns side, and we're not related on the Loverns side, we're related on the McLeod side. So everybody knew everybody. So for me, even to hear my name, people knew where I fit. And so I grew up, and some of you can relate to this, learning to be whatever the situation calls for. I knew how to morph into what was expected, And I did not ever want to let my family's reputation down, uh, the extended family, my immediate family's reputation, I didn't want to let down by my behavior. And by default, I didn't want to let God down. Grew up in church, and so I I learned to be very, very good. And started preaching at 15, so then not only did I have my family's reputation, I had my own reputation. By the time I graduated high school and got to Sanford, 
um, I had preached in over 250 churches, and so now I was the, the athlete who was also preaching, and so there was a lot of pressure that both Melody and I had growing up, thinking and hearing, and this is, this is true, but the way that we interpreted this added a lot of pressure. We heard things like, we may be the only Jesus some people might ever see. And trying to be a good witness in high school and and, in the locker room and all those things, again, that is very, very true. But the way we internalized that, it basically led to, I've got to lead with perfection and I've got to cover up anything that's less than perfect. And some of you maybe can can relate to that. But um, the first picture I showed you was my freshman year, her junior year when we first met. This is my junior year when we married. And um, what Melody did not know on this particular day was I had a big secret. You see, when I was eight years old, I discovered a stash of pornography and did not know what to do with that. I didn't have a box to put that in. And that began a secret struggle for me because in that small town, when you're trying to manage your reputation, I also didn't know what to do with negative emotions. And, and my, one of my thoughts was, if I'm doing the Christian life right, then I won't, I won't experience any negative emotions. It's all happy, happy, joy, joy. I've got Jesus, and my role is to be a, a beacon of hope for a lost and dying world. So I didn't know what to do with anger. I didn't know what to do with sorrow. I didn't know what to do with grief and sadness. So when I was feeling those emotions, it now I, I know what to call it now. It's a thing called shame. I felt shame. I felt like there was something wrong with me. Because as a good Christian, I shouldn't be feeling these things. I am feeling it. So all I needed to do was to stuff those emotions and cover them up. Exposed to pornography at eight, that began my escape. That was an escape which temporarily would make me feel better, but only would add to the bad behavior that I knew was wrong. Melody shared some of her uh, philosophy, good choices plus the pursuit of godliness equals a perfect life. Mine was to know better is to do better. If I know better, and I knew what was right and wrong up here, but it was not equating to better behavior. So my takeaway was, here's my proof that I'm fundamentally flawed, that voice of shame that I had internalized. Well, you also thought that marriage was going to fix it, right? Yes. And on that particular day, that's why I didn't share that secret with her. I was longing for intimacy, a longing to be known, but withholding a key part of me, one out of fear because I was too much of a coward. I knew she loved who she thought I was. I was terrified to find out if she loved who I really was. I did not love who I really was. The other thing is, Melody said, I thought marriage is going to fix the problem, as do many of the men that I have the privilege of walking with uh, today. Marriage uh, did not fix the problem, and when it didn't, it took my shame even to a deeper level. But both of us related to God from a performance treadmill. One way to sum it up, even though we never would have said this out loud, because if you say this out loud, we would have known immediately the bad theology behind this. But our practical theology was He loves us when we're performing well— He's angry and disappointed when we're making mistakes. And we've got to do enough good to keep the Father smiling and happy. Because when I do bad, he's frowning and very disappointed. Well, and I think part of mine, I don't know that I thought that God was disappointed. I just kept doing, because I always wanted him to be proud of me. You know, as a music major at Sanford and both of us in sports, I always kind of felt like God's out in the audience and everything that I'm doing, I'm kind of like, are you happy? Are you happy? Are you happy? Because again, that scripture verse is, I want him to say well done at the end of my life. But what I didn't realize is that I've always, I have already earned his smile 
smile because of the finished work of Christ. And therefore I do. So I'm not doing to earn his smile. I'm walking in obedience because of what he's done for me. And that was a huge, huge shift for me and, and as our story blew up. Yeah, and as I said, Melody's formula, my formula to know better plus effort and willpower is to do better. And here's the thing, I want you to look at this, because some of you may say, yeah, that, you know, it's, it's almost like if, I, if I'm going back and thinking about it now, I never again would have said this out loud. When I was 11 years old and I was saved, it's almost like Jesus was a Swiss army knife. You know what I'm talking about? One of those that's got the fork and the spoon and all the other things, you know, all kind of bundled together that would make you walk this way if you actually put it in your pocket or something. Every gadget and gizmo that I need for any problem is right here. I would sing the songs, all I need is Jesus, and I knew I had Jesus, but where the enemy came in and that brought that voice of shame was, see, you're not doing it right. See, your willpower, you, you just need to figure out how to work this, and so I would feel shame that I knew I had the answer, but I wasn't applying it well. But here's the thing, guys. If willpower fixed our problem with sin, Jesus didn't have to die. Think about that. But sometimes our practical theology is that he wipes our slate clean at salvation. But somehow along the way, I, I picked up this idea that it was my job to keep it clean. And the farther I got away from age 11, the more I knew I'm not doing a very good job of keeping it clean and the more shame that I felt. And with the shame came more performance. As Melody said, I just got to keep doing to keep that shame uh, covered up. So my core belief, and Melody may be in a slightly different way, but mine was, if you knew me, you wouldn't love or accept me. Therefore, I must hide. And let me tell you, I did a good job of hiding. I had a very pristine mask um, that, I, that I hid behind. And the best way I can describe it for me, pushing down all that negative emotion, managing the reputation, you know, it's summertime. <laughs> I guess technically not, but still feels like still summertime, feels like right? <laughs> uh, so maybe some of you are getting a little bit of refreshment just by seeing that, that view of the beach ball with the, with the pool. But you know the kids, kids game that they play at the pool? They'll see how long they can hold the beach ball underwater. Well, everybody knows it's a funny game because everybody in the pool, bit, pool deck knows at some point this beach ball is going to come shooting to the surface with a lot of force. And so that was really my whole life is holding that beach ball underwater, managing reputation, making sure that nobody had anything negative to say about me, making sure the guys I went to school with, maybe making sure I was being a good witness and, and just wearing this pristine mask. In some ways, guys, trying to kill my heart because for me, I thought it was my heart, my passion, and my desires that kept getting me in trouble. Any doctors in the room? A few in the medical profession? When you look at an EKG, flatline, it's pretty negative. But I was trying to be flatlined. I used to think to myself, that Trey, nothing phases him. It's just water off a duck's back. What I have learned as my heart has come alive through a lot of the own undoing in my own life is God was bringing me to life. When you're alive, you've got highs and lows. And learning to feel the full range of emotions is really what it means to be fully alive. But I was trying to be dead. I was trying just to kill my heart so that I could more effectively be the dutiful Christian that God was calling me to be. And 10 years into marriage, all my secrets came shooting to the surface. And Melody found out not only about the pornography, but by that time, 
because I tried to manage this reputation for so long, I had crossed every line that I swore that I would never cross. You see, pornography, some of you, I know that's, that's talked about, thankfully it is talked more and more about in our churches and certainly culture is dealing with that. But pornography, sometimes we'll, oh, it's just pornography. But it takes us places that we swear. I'll never cross this line, I'll never cross this line. But for me, by the time Melody found out uh, there had been multiple infidelities. There had been multiple uh, times where she found out that I was just simply lying, trying to get away with uh, the double life. And some people who say, well, it's just pornography. Who's it hurting? And we always include this slide because these, this, were the, this was the photograph taken just before the beach ball came to the surface with our four children. And guys, I can't begin to even today Know or imagine the impact that my sin that I was trying to manage alone and isolated for so long had not only on Melody, but also these four children. So if there is someone here today maybe believing the lie of the enemy, it's just pornography. It's not hurting anybody. Um, It was not only hurting them, but also after our divorce, and ultimately it did end in divorce, after being married for almost 11 years, I had to get to a place where I realized how it had been hurting me, that God had a bigger, better story for me, and pornography, obviously, it was not a part of that. Uh, we are going to fast forward. We were divorced for six long years. Um, we're actually about to, we've actually turned in our book to the um, to the publisher. It'll be out in the spring. It's called Our Divorce Did Not Work Out. Uh, we're very thankful uh, for that. Uh, we were divorced for six years, but in October next month, almost uh, October, we're almost to our 11th anniversary of our remarriage. And, and so part of in the time that we have left, just a few minutes, we want to just not just say what happened. We want to really begin to unpack for you how that was possible. The transformation that God had to bring out in us individually to make reconciliation of our marriage a possibility. Uh, that was a good day uh, in October of, of 2008. Our children do grow up. Um, we have, we're now empty nesters, and um, our youngest— I know that's hard for everybody to believe, right? It is. Uh, <laughs> sh- surely, surely it is. Um, but this was um, final—this was the last, uh, last Easter— uh, us being together. Um, we're all, we're empty nesters now. Um, we never thought this would happen, but we met at Sanford as we shared. All four of our children um, have either been to Sanford or attending Sanford now. Our youngest two are still there. Uh, so pray for us, full-time ministry. Uh, last year we had three at Sanford. Thankfully now it's down to just two again, um, but God is, is providing. He is, is faithful uh, in that. But if you have a, a Bible with you, I want to um, begin to unpack for you a paradigm shift as it relates to this word grace that Melody and I both, um, both had. Titus 2, 11 and 12. You see, I had grown up preaching. I mean, again, I pre- started preaching at 15 and came to Sanford, continued to preach, planted a church at 20 years old on Lake Weedowie over in East Alabama. My parents soon joined the church. So at 20 years old, I'd get married. I'm my parents' pastor and my youth director, the closest thing to an older brother that I had. I'm his pastor. So when I say I had a beach ball, that beach ball kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I felt so alone and 
just trapped. Nobody can know what I'm dealing with. I'm supposed to have the answers uh, on my own. Again, to know better. I know better, so it was just, just more information, but also more beating myself up. Because I was thinking, if I'll just beat myself up about this bad behavior, ultimately it will change. But look at what, what Paul writes uh, to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, I got that part of, of grace. It was saving power. All right, and 11 years old, I had received the saving power of God's grace. But here's what I had missed. Look at what he also says grace does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, I kind of had this idea, if I'm really honest, that I was saved by faith, that my justification was faith, mercy, unmerited favor, all those things I totally understood. But if I'm honest, practically, my sanctification, the process of growing more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, it was, due, it was done by sweat, effort, and discipline. Actually, to show God how thankful I was for my justification. It's like he had done what he did at salvation, and now I've got to make all good choices so that he'll see how happy and thankful I am for that. And guys, that's a tricky thing that the enemy does. He can't take away our salvation, but I think what he does is makes us think it's up to us as far as the transformation that goes on in our lives. And what that leads to is hiding. And ultimately, unbelief. Because if it is true, and it is what we sang in our call to worship this morning, that all of our sins are forgiven, guess what? We don't have to cover up and hide our sins. We don't have to have a pristine mask in place to convince everybody that we've got it all together. We can do what we talk about in our ministry when we come together around a place of brokenness to say, guys, we're here to connect at weakness instead of trying to impress with strength. The transforming power of grace, not just the saving power of grace. So I just want to, I want to speak to, if, if I were one of you sitting in the seats listening to this story, I would be wrestling a little bit, you know, and, and our ministry, our ministry, uh, uh, I'll tell you. Um, so our ministry, basically when we started was based on Luke fifteen twenty the story, and we say now the story of the two unbelieving brothers. And that story did not really come alive to me personally until well into our divorce because Luke 15 20 was always the story of the prodigal who um you know came home was in you know was reckless with all of his inheritance and things like that and was in the pig pen and then came home to work for his father that's basically how I saw that and what really began to come alive to me through our divorce years was the elder brother because I was that quote unquote, I wouldn't have said this, but I probably thought it. I was that perfect Christian wife who loved her man, who took pride in being a wife and a mother. And then all of a sudden our kids are five, four, two, and six months old. And here I am faced with this. And ultimately uh, that leading us to divorce. And I remember going into a counselor, counselor's office and literally, again, I'm a recovering elder brother for anybody that um, is, is, uh, can identify with that story. And I sat in her office and I said, I don't understand. 
You know, I don't understand how this can happen to a woman like me. <laughs> like I said, I'm a recovering elder brother. And it was like, but I've been a great wife and I love my man and I take pride in being, you know, taking care of him and all that. I don't understand how, you know, he went to pornography and then it led to all this. And, and as I sat in that office, at some point, I'm sure I was in a fetal position, but my counselor lovingly said, Melody, did you forget the scripture verse that said the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy? And I honestly, with the paradigm that I had, remember, good choices plus the pursuit of godliness equals a perfect life. I said, well, I just didn't think that verse applied to me. <laughs> and so a lot of my sin came out after the divorce because it was that recovering elder brother who couldn't celebrate that the prodigal had come home. And so a lot of my sin was just, you know, I had this scorecard that I kept up that Trey could do no right. Um, and, and just, you know, being completely honest with you, I remember probably about a year into our divorce, our, um, I remember going to our kids and I never disparaged Trey. There was things that I was like, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. Cause during the part of our separation, um, there, we were in a large church there in Birmingham and it was almost like the Holy Spirit would bring people, adults to me who were products of divorce and, or who, whose parents had gone through divorce, um, at a young age. And they, and it was almost like God was like, you know, keep memories alive in the house. Don't disparage Trey, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so of course I'm still wanting to do the right thing. So I'm checking off all the boxes, but this particular night I'm in my son's room and he's seven years old at the time. And all of our kids are in Christian school and I would tuck them in and scratch their backs at night. And I just remember him like sobbing, which of course was such a hard thing to, to walk through with your kids. But he's like sobbing and we're praying. And all of a sudden he said, you know, after we finished, he said, mommy, why don't you forgive daddy? And I said, I said, mommy has forgiven daddy. And he was like, well, why aren't y'all married then? And um, I just remember the only thing I could come up with in that moment was like, mommy's threshold is not what God's threshold is and that God has a plan and that he's good. Well, again, uh, as a former music major, a lot of the, just those desperate nights as a single mom, I'd go to the piano, I'd tuck in the kids and I'd go to the piano. And this was just a time where I would just feel so exposed of how am I going to do this and what is this going to look like and all that. And this particular night, obviously my uh, reco recovering elder brother got the best of me. And so I'm in there and I think I was singing that this is the air I breathe. I don't know if y'all remember that song, I think by Chris Tomlin. And I'm singing that and all of a sudden I go back into my bedroom and I hit my knees and all I can pray in that moment is like, Lord, you have got to take him out. Like make him get hit by a truck, give him a disease, whatever it is. But all I know is that closure for me, he has got to, to be off. Parking and coming in. That's why I was looking so often both ways, making sure that no, you know, I'm very, very careful because I still don't know. Does God answer every prayer? Uh, you know, no, no. But I, ha I mean, pain makes us do things, right? And when we love people and we're in pain, it, it makes it even harder. And so I knew God wasn't a punitive God, but this felt very punitive. So I just felt if, at least if he was wiped off the face of the earth, then I'll have closure and I won't be in pain all the time. So just, again, don't think that, oh, we're back together because she's just this godly, godly wife. Well, and what <laughs> she's describing about that elder brother, and you got to know, publicly, I was the elder brother for all of my life until that exploded because that's when all my secrets were exposed. 
So I was an elder brother with a secret prodigal that I knew about until then the prodigal was exposed. And, and ultimately, guys, what you got to know, and that's why Luke 15 is such a big piece of our story, is that our reconciliation, to really wrap your head around it, is God taking an elder brother and a prodigal and, and not, um, not just saying, okay, now prodigal, you need to come over here and be an elder brother. Because unfortunately, that's what a lot of our discipleship in a lot of churches is turning prodigals into elder brothers right? Because it's all about behavior and doing and looking the part. What he did for us is he exposed the rebellion of being very good like the elder brother and exposed the rebellion by being very bad like the prodigal. And both of us came to the father in a new way with a new perspective to see just how scandalous grace really is. And I use that term very specifically and very intentionally Because we don't usually hear scandal and grace together. But guys, here's the thing. When grace quits being a scandal, it means we really have failed to understand what grace really is. For me, when grace quits being a scandal, it means that I'm thinking too highly of myself once again. Grace is a total scandal. But let me kind of unpack that. So let's give a working definition of grace which uh, there's many things we could put in here. This is what I have come up with, and I think your pastor would approve. I didn't run this by him before I got here. If I can get it up there. Come on. Have we lost connection? Wait, if it does come up there, well, but it's the unmerited favor and transforming power of God as manifested in the salvation and sanctification of sinners. So that's what I want to give you as our working definition. If I can get it up there, because I know some of you may be taking notes. Yeah, I think we are. Yep, we've lost connection. Oh, well, as long as we can see it. We may have messed up there, because maybe we can't see it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is. So for me, that was, that's the working definition of grace. But I want to give you my practical understanding of grace, okay? Now, some of you, you may not want to admit it, but you're going to be able to relate to this. So grace was, um, so here's God's perfect standard. And I thought good Christians, you get as close to that perfect standard. You know, no, we're never going to meet it because obviously we're not perfect, you know, right? That's, that's our, that, you know, we, we kind of roll. And I was a public, I mean, I was a present tense sinner in a past tense sin culture, and here's what I mean by that, right? I grew up in a church where sin, if it was ever talked about, was always in the past tense. I was struggling in the present tense. And so when people would say, oh, of course we're not perfect, here's what came to my mind. Yes, it must be rolling stops through the stop sign or maybe a little gossip here and there, right? Well, I was struggling with some big sin. And so I thought grace was that little extra that God would pour in to make up the difference between God's perfect standard and our best effort. Now, here's the thing about that. If that's your understanding of grace, which it was for me, then here's the deal. If grace is that little extra, then every year you should need less and less of that. Because I also had heard that the more we walk with Jesus, the less and less we sin. Right? So every year I should need less and less of God's grace by that definition and understanding of God's grace. Now, some of you have never spelled it out that way, potentially. But if you're honest, maybe that too has been your working definition of grace. Here's the thing, guys, now looking back at that. If the the pride and arrogance that I could get that close to God's perfect standard is laughable to me today, 
right? That I could, and here's the thing, and also even that understanding that the more we walk with Jesus, the less and less we sin. I mean, let me give you a scriptural um, example here. The Apostle Paul, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, right? He'd be a good one to look at. When he was first converted on the road to Damascus, you remember the story, this con- a miraculous conversion. He's on his way to Damascus to actually take out sinner, to take out Christians, and he's miraculously converted. Soon after that experience, he referred to himself as the least of the apostles. At the midpoint of his ministry, he referred to himself as the least of the Jews, God's people. At the twilight of his ministry, right when it was about to be over, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. So at least in Paul's example, the more he walked with Jesus, the more he saw his desperate need for Jesus. And why is this relevant as it relates to understanding grace? Because guys, some of you can relate to me when I say my loneliest time of the week was Sunday morning. Because that's when I was comparing my worst with everybody else's highlight reel. And sometimes you could even argue that's even harder today because everybody's highlight reel is on display more than ever before with social media, right? We put out our best and it doesn't match our worst. Some of you came in this morning as a couple maybe feeling that you're not measuring up. And maybe as a couple, you're feeling shame and feeling less than. Because that is not the definition of grace. You see, the fact is, Scripture says that our best, on our very best day, compared to God's perfect standard, is as filthy rags, menstrual cloths. Pretty graphic description of what we, the very best that we have to offer God. You see, that's why we are desperate for a Savior. And when we begin to allow that, and it took a lot of pain for Melody and I to really come face to face with that, to see just how broken we were. You see, we spent so much energy covering up our brokenness, and we were missing the scandal of grace. We were missing the transforming power of God's grace. So all of our energy went into holding down the beach ball and covering up brokenness. When God was saying, no, true fellowship is to connect with other broken people and point one another to a perfect Savior. That's what church should be. And that, because grace is true, is why we can so boldly come and share our story of brokenness. Because when shame is removed from the equation, we can begin to connect with each other authentically as, as human beings. You see, we did, and another way of saying it, we were, we were human doings in that performance treadmill. Our value, our, our validation, our affirmation, our very identity was based on what we did, checking the boxes, which meant we couldn't have true fellowship because the closer you got to us, the more you would see there were chinks in our armor, right? But learning to be a human being, learning just to be, learning to rest uh, in the finished work of Christ. Well, and just just another quick story I just wanted to share because it was really God taking both Trey and myself on a path individually. Because, you know, when you divorce, you still have kids every other weekend. And so we're still tethered on some levels to a, just a process with one another that I think was probably good because it created tension for both of us. But really it was— That's why God didn't take me out. That's right, God. 
that tension <laughs> that right. was created. But it was a series of arguments, really, that kind of began to continue to expose my sin and my heart and things like that. And then um, ultimately, we went to my counselor, and my counselor was really the person who lovingly said, Melody, you've got this scorecard, and you've got to lose the scorecard. Like, Trey cannot win anything when, when you have that scorecard. And I don't even know that I... I had realized that I was doing that. And so that was kind of a huge day. We went into the to the counselor's office and we we had that talk and my counselor lovingly he excused him before he 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 called me out. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so it was that argument that kind of turned things around and Trey had mentioned reconciliation a number of times and I and we had really after I went to him and had to confess of just you know, keeping this trump card over his head all the time, we had really come to a place where we were co-parenting really, really well. And so long, long story short, um, we started dating. We kind of dated in secret for a little bit because we thought if we didn't, if this didn't work, we didn't want our kids to be disappointed or, or even have to tell our parents right away because, you know, when, when something like this happens, this does not just affect two people. It's like uh, maybe the Eiffel Tower being thrown into a body of water, the wake and the ripple effect. Of, of this was really, really big. So anyway, so this particular Saturday, Trey comes over, and we're co-parenting really well. We had started dating. We told our kids. He had, drove, he had driven to North Carolina to ask my parents for forgiveness, and so just really, you know, making some headway. But one of the things that somebody came and told me when Trey and I were uh, in the process of going through divorce was, don't ever tell the kids um, what happened, that that's really Trey's story to, to share. And so when we divorced, we basically sat the kids down and just said, daddy's broken a covenant with mommy and God, and um, we're not going to be married anymore. So that was all that they needed to know at that age. But there were so many times where, you know, I'm, I'm, kinda, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, if y'all ever know that, and I'm the one that wants to have fun and have, have all these new experiences. But I always felt like I'm the, I feel like the bad guy. I'm the one having to tell them to do their homework and clean their rooms and all that kind of stuff. And so there would almost be these times where I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm just going to tell them. I'm going to tell them what their dad did because I just sat in that tension a lot. And the Holy Spirit would almost be like, nope you're not. And so anyway, so this particular Saturday morning, Trey comes over and we're getting along really, really well. And he sits the kids down. And again, they're still at, in classical Christian school. And uh, I usually can't ever share this story without crying. So <laughs> beware, just a heads up. So anyway, so he comes over there and he sits in the, in the living room with the kids. And he was like, hey, kids, come over. And he starts asking them about the Ten Commandments, which I knew our kids knew the Ten Commandments because they always had to learn scripture verses and stuff like that at school. And so he starts off with like, what is thou shall not bear false witness? And, um, and then what is, what is thou shall not covet your neighbors, you know? And so he, you know, the kids begin to tell him that. And then all of a sudden he comes and I'm, I'm kind of standing in the kitchen, but I can see like the living room is like right here. So I can see everything that's going on. And then all of a sudden Trey said, what is thou shall not commit adultery? And I mean, my eyes are like, you know, and all of a sudden our girls who are what, like 11 and six, I think at the time, there are bookends. And I think our girls said something like, is that when a mommy and daddy likes another mommy and daddy that they're not married to? And, and I'm like, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is like, you know, just preparing me for what's about to happen. And Trey was like, yeah, that's exactly what that is. And daddy did that multiple times to mommy. And so I say that to just say that like God was like, it was almost like he had his arm around me, but our girls in that moment grabbed their dad around the neck and they said, dad, 
we forgive you. And that moment, I think, was more for me than anybody because it was like God said, Melody, if you'll just let go of this pain. And it was like I could see myself on the surgical table. He was like, I will heal your heart and you can let go of all this pain once and for all. And so I share that to you because God is a God of reconciliation and he can do what we cannot do ourselves. Believe me, I, I thought I had forgiven him over and over and over again. But God used that opportunity to just continue to expose us, but to also take us to deeper places. And he continues to do that, just continuing to remind us, I've got you. I am good. This feels like a really dark chapter in your life right now, but I'm a good, good father, and I will take you through this. I want to kind of end by sharing a, a story um, just about God's goodness and His grace. And, and I, know, I know a lot of you are hearing this story in different ways, and obviously I hope that it is being applied to whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. Because our enemy, uh, he's not very clever in the sense of everything he had, he threw at Christ, right? So his, even back in the garden, basically the lie in the garden was God's not good. He's holding out on you. He can't be trusted. Take matters into your own hands. And sometimes the circumstances of our life make us believe that God's not good. And I just want to tell you as a reminder that whatever circumstance you're going through, your own plan A. Sometimes we get this idea that we've messed up plan A, we're back on E, F, or G, and maybe uh, you're trying to earn your way back to plan A. And like all this stuff that you hear on Sunday morning, all the stuff in Bible study, it doesn't really quite apply until you work yourself back to plan A. And I want to tell you that's a lie, your own plan A. We can't be bad enough to mess up plan A. That's also part of the scandal of grace. All things are working together for our good. He is sovereign and he's at work in a good story. Now you may be going through a chapter right now that's really dark. And in the circumstances you may find yourself in, you may be, you may be thinking, you see, this is my proof that I've messed up plan A. Trust me, I've been through many, many of those seasons. But I want to close with this story of how good God is and how grace wastes nothing. During the six years we were divorced, Melody lived in a community in Birmingham called Mount Laurel. As many of you may know, it's a planned community there built by the same folks that built um, Seaside down in, um, in the Destin area. The real planned community. You better like your neighbors because they're right there, you know, beside you. You know, you can reach through the window, you know, to give them some gray poupon or whatever. And so most of these, you know, most of these houses had a wraparound porch, as did Melody's, right? So every two weeks when I would have the children, I would take them to Mount Laurel, take them back to Melody, and they would have their little suitcases, and all four of the kids would get out with their four little suitcases, and they would go walking across that porch, and I would say bye to them, and they'd cross the threshold, and then I would make an about face, go back to an empty car, and go back to an empty house. And guys, the, the contrast between a weekend full of energy with four children and being completely alone was so very painful every two weeks, and it was a constant reminder this is not the way it's supposed to be. And the enemy would just be relentless with this message of shame. You messed up your story, you messed up Melody's story, and you messed up the story of these kids. 
But every two weeks when I would do that, I would hear their suitcases going across the wooden porch, the clackety-clack sound of those little wheels going across the porch. And you know how sounds, they take us to emotions, right? Sometimes we're not even fully aware. So that was a sound that was associated with that very, very painful experience that happened every two weeks, that painful reminder, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But I I don't think I was really consciously aware of how negative that sound was, because it always happened at that time. So our story back in 2017 was a part of a movie called The Heart of Man. Some of you may have seen uh, the movie. It's out on iTunes. I encourage you to see it. It's about the relentless pursuit of the Father. They've reenacted, recreated the Luke 15 narrative. Our story happened to be one of those that was in the film. And we got to go, uh, and our board made it possible for our children to go to L.A. for the red carpet premiere of The Heart of Man. That's where this picture uh, was taken. So we land in LAX the day before. Melody and the girls did not check a bag, um, or they did check bags, excuse me. Melody has, I think, one bag just for her product, for her hair. Take, it, you know, it, is, it is a lot to go through. Hair products and shoes. <laughs> That's right. Um, but the boys and I had our bags with us, all right? So we're walking to baggage claim to get Melody and the girls' luggage, and guess what I hear walking through LAX? The clackety-clack of those wheels on their suitcase. And immediately that sound that was associated with this negative emotion, man, that negative emotion just overwhelmed me. And I began to think about that, but then immediately the goodness of God, he reminded me why we were there in LA to celebrate this movie, that our kids were going to be able to be a part of that with us. And guys, here's how good God is. A sound that I was not even consciously aware was that negative. He redeemed that sound for me in that moment in LAX. So guys, as we close and have a time of of decision this morning, you may not be able to relate at all to the specific brokenness in our story. I hope you can't. I hope pornography and sexual brokenness has never been a part of your story. But I know the numbers, and I know based on the numbers, the percentages, the statistics, that many of you, that's either part of your story or you've lived through it with a a relative or loved one. But even if that's not, we all have those areas of our life where the enemy is whispering that that's got to be a part of that beach ball. That's what we've got to keep underwater. We've got to keep that hidden and out of sight. And many of you showed up this morning, and maybe yours is different, but your particular beach ball, whatever it is, is absolutely wearing you out. More and more energy every day, every week, every month, every year goes into keeping that beach ball underwater. And if you don't hear anything else about our story today, just hear this. God wants to love you well and let that beach ball come to the surface. That's the undoing. And I fought the undoing for most of my life. I had no paradigm that it was actually God bringing about the undoing. Because like the quote that she shared from Tim Keller, Christianity is an explosion that makes room for something new. So I don't know what your beach ball is this morning, but I know a lot of you have one. Whatever the mask looks like, whatever you feel like, well, they can't know this about me, whatever those secrets Guys, I would just encourage you this next week, share your story, bring those secrets to the surface. 
I know some of you are tired. Maybe this morning, at this time of decision, you just want to say, hey, pastor, I am tired of keeping this beach ball underwater. I'm ready. I don't know what the future is going to look like with this out, but I'm trusting that God is good and that God can redeem even that part of my story. So as your pastor comes, as the instrumentalists come, I just want you to think about what your beach ball is and what is it that you need to say, Lord, I'm ready to let this go. Pastor.